Rise of Authoritarianism and What to Do About It, a Q&A with Timothy Snyder, by Sarah Chung, voiced for Inkstone by Christine Lay and Steve White. Do not obey in advance. Defend institutions. Believe in truth. These are some of the lessons that Yale University historian Timothy Snyder detailed in his book on tyranny, a guide to surviving America's turn toward authoritarianism based on the events of 20th century Europe. The lessons Snyder laid out in the 2017 book have found an eager audience also in Hong Kong and elsewhere. It became a bestseller during the protests that broke out in the city last summer, calling for greater autonomy from Beijing and freer elections. One of the most popular slogans centered its scrutiny on tyranny itself. There are no rioters, only tyranny. As Hong Kong's freedoms face new threats from a sweeping national security law imposed on the city by Beijing, Inkstone spoke with Snyder about modern tyranny, the surge of global protests from Hong Kong to Belarus, and whether protests can defeat tyranny. Your book on tyranny was an inspiration for many Hong Kong protesters. We've seen in Hong Kong in recent months a lot of events happening, a national security law, the arrests of opposition lawmakers, etc. How relevant do you think the lessons from your book, written for the U.S. context with lessons from 20th century Europe, are for Hong Kong? That's really a question for people in Hong Kong themselves. For me, as the author, it's been very heartening to see that the book has been used by people beyond the U.S. and around the world. I was trying to take the things I understood about the history of the rest of the world and apply them to the United States. And then what's happened is that the book has become at least as important in the rest of the world as it has been in the U.S. So are the lessons relevant? I think what I have learned from protesters is that they are relevant. If people are able to take the lessons and apply them in their own countries, that means they are relevant. I think particularly the first few lessons of the book about standing out and about not obeying in advance and about corporeal politics, that is, protesting, are relevant in Hong Kong and a lot of other places right now. In your book, you described tyranny based on the ideas of the American founding fathers, as the usurpation of power by a single individual or group, or the circumvention of law by rulers for their own benefit. How would you define tyranny for the modern context, and when do we know when we are living under tyranny? I think in the modern context, you define tyranny in opposition to two things. You define it in opposition to democracy. Democracy is not an American idea, it's a general idea. It's the idea that every person should be represented and equally represented. And when that's not true, when you don't have a vote or your vote is not equal to other people's votes, that's a modern tyranny. The second idea against which to define tyranny is the rule of law. So if the laws are not just, or if the laws are unequally applied from one place to another or from one person to another, then that's also a kind of modern tyranny. We're seeing the emergence of major protests in Belarus, Thailand, Lebanon, and also from Hong Kong last year. Why do you think there are so many protests happening at this point in time? Generally speaking, it's because authoritarianism is on the rise around the world. The systems that are authoritarian, like China, are becoming even more so. And then there are systems like the American one, which are tilting towards authoritarianism. That's one thing. There is a general global trend. I think another thing is that people are realizing that the Internet, rather than 
liberating on its own, has to be used as a tool to get people to liberate themselves. Successful protests like Ukraine 2014, Hong Kong last year, Belarus now, are protests where people are using the internet to get other people to do things, like to get out on the street. I think that's a big turn in consciousness for people to realize that sitting and looking at a screen is not itself a political activity. If you want to have political activity, you have to actually show yourself and meet other people in a physical space and take some kind of a risk. But I think another issue is generational. In Belarus, these are people who have been under the same ruler for a very long time. In Hong Kong, judging from afar, I mean, you would know better than me, but these are young people who are looking at their last chance to have a free city slip away. So part of it is also that vision of how the future can be worse than the present. In your recent op-ed in the Washington Post about what Americans can learn from Belarus, you mentioned that there are echoes of Hong Kong on the streets of Belarus. This information sharing between these protest movements, why do you think that is happening? For one thing, that's just as a matter of fact. Protesters communicate with one another. For another, it's because people observe tactics. They see what other people are doing. Again, I know as a matter of fact that people in Belarus observe demonstrations in the U.S. and observe demonstrations in Hong Kong. So in particular, the tactic of not having only mass demonstrations, but having small dispersed demonstrations that get across their message and then disperse before the police can do anything. That's a tactic that has spread outward from Hong Kong. So I think it's normal that protesters learn from one another. It's also probably necessary. Do you think it's also the case that states learn from one another? We're seeing in Belarus, similar to what they did in Hong Kong, that they're describing the protest as an emerging color revolution sparked by foreign interference. How do you think that states are learning from each other in that aspect? What strikes me here is the universal lack of imagination. So whether it's China or Belarus or the United States or Russia, the leaders who try to break up demonstrations always say the same things. They say, these were inspired from abroad. These do not have the support of the people in general. This is a national security threat. I don't know if they're copying or if there is a total lack of imagination among 21st century tyrants because there never, no longer is anyone repressing in the name of something. It's always repression in the name of these very conservative, status quo, generic principles like stability or sovereignty. Everyone is saying the exact same thing. So I'm not sure if they're actually copying or if just tyrants in the 21st century no longer have any positive vision or any kind of ideology that is meaningful. Do you think that the protests we're seeing now will be effective in countering tyranny? Do you think that they will be successful? Well, they're much more effective than the absence of protests. It would be historically foolish to say that every protest works. But if you protest, your chances are much better than if you don't protest. Sometimes what history shows is that protests in one moment, for example, solidarity and Poland in 1980, then years later or a decade later have their consequence. So sometimes protests, even if they fail at one moment, create a generation, create experiences and create norms that people can then profit from later on. 
So it's impossible to say whether any protest is going to succeed, but it's certainly better than not protesting most of the time. Going back to your question about the global, I think it's very important for Americans to see other people protesting for democracy. Americans are a little bit confused about what to do because they tend to think of themselves as automatically democratic. And now that that's not true, what are we supposed to do? It does help to look around the world and see that other people actually have ideas about what to do. If you're taking part in a protest and you're on the right side, you can also know that what you're doing is setting an example for other people. Also, what's happening is that these protests are happening at a time of a global pandemic. In your book, you talked about favorable emergencies and how authoritarians love to exploit that. So can you share more about how you see different regimes exploiting this pandemic? There's a very widespread here. There are some governments like America, Brazil, Russia, where a strongman figure tried to exercise his will against the pandemic and failed. And then those are the countries where the pandemic is killing more people. Then you have a country like China, which was already a very technologically advanced authoritarian regime, which has used the pandemic simply to move further in that direction and has done relatively well with the pandemic, but has used that as a justification to become even more intrusive into the lives of its people. Then you have authoritarian countries like Hungary, which have used the pandemic in a very traditional way, as an excuse to close down democracy, to say, we need special powers. This is an emergency. The word you used, emergency, is a crucial word. Every time the classic way to turn a democracy into a tyranny is to declare an emergency, and then have that emergency become permanent. That's the basic idea. 